On a foggy night, the uh, ship's captain saw what, he appear, what appeared to be the lights of another ship heading his direction. He instructed his signalman to contact the other ship by signal light. He sent this message, change your course 10 degrees to the north. The reply came back, change your course 10 degrees to the south. The captain responded, I am a captain, change your course 10 degrees to the north. The response was, I am a seaman first class, you change your course 10 degrees to the south. Well, the captain was furious as he obviously outranked the seaman. He had his signalman reply, I am a battleship, you change your course 10 degrees to the north. The final reply was, I am a lighthouse, you change your course 10 degrees to the south. I love that story. You know, though funny, it reminds me of the not-so-funny reality that many folks today are like the captain. They think too highly of themselves, which in turn affects negatively sound judgment. You know, the Bible repeatedly warns that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, that God hates a haughty spirit, and that pride comes before destruction. As we come to Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 41, in our own study through his gospel, Luke introduces his reader to the ultimate authority, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me in your Bible to this passage as we find it in Luke chapter 4, where we will learn of five truths which relate to the ultimate authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Luke's gospel account, Chapter 4, starting with verse 31, we pick up these words. It says, And he came down, speaking of Jesus, to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. And there was a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began discussing with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was getting out into every locality in the surrounding district. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they made request of him on her behalf. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately arose and waited on them. And while the sun was setting, all who had any sick, all who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on every one of them, he was healing them. And demons also were coming out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Son of God. And rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. In this particular passage, we see the ultimate authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we all have pictures in our minds of individuals who epitomize authority. If you stop and think for a second, you think back over the course of your lifetime, there were those in your life who were the ultimate, as far as you were concerned, the ultimate authority. For those who played sports, it might have been a coach, it might have been a teacher, it might have been a parent, a mother or a father or a grandmother. 
It may have been somebody in U.S. history, somebody in in world history, someone maybe like a Winston Churchill, as his jaws were set like a bulldog as he faced the falling darkness of the Third Reich. Or if you think about someone like Vince Lombardi or Tom Landry, you know, them in in their trench coats with their hats on and giving instruction to either a Bart Starr or Roger Staubach or someone who was in, you could just tell they were in complete control of what was going on. Margaret Thatcher, as she approached the noisy House of Commons in England, as she exercised her authority and her dignity and her demeanor and her demand. We see it even in the first Gulf War with Norman Schwarzkopf. I can get a picture out of my mind of him in his his camouflage outfit with his pointer there and just in total control as he was pointing and telling the direction that the war was going to take. You know, and each one of those images is is instructive and worthy of study. Uh, But for Christians, the greatest study in authority is, of of course, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. You know, he's the fountain of all authority and the well from which each believer must draw for the proper use of authority in the church and also in this fallen world that God has us. So we look to him as our ultimate authority. We look at him as the ultimate example of how we should conduct ourselves as those who are given authority by God in order to reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Having recounted how Jesus' initial, if you recall from our last message, how his initial exercise of authority was murderously rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, we saw that they rose up and cast him out of the city in verse 29 of the same chapter and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down from the cliff. He exercised authority in their life, but they rejected his authority. You know, there is only one God and we're not him and we have the option or the choice of either accepting his ultimate authority in our life or saying we're our own God. You know, from the very beginning, sin nature of man was an exercise of rebellion against the authority of God. God told Adam what he could and couldn't do and Adam decided he would do whatever he wanted to do at the expense of the authority of God. Satan, as he was thrown, from the, as he was thrown down from the very throne room of heaven was guilty of the same sin, the sin of wanting to be God, wanting to be worshipped as God, not wanting to be told what to do by God. And he has such infiltrated humanity and sin nature resulted because of the temptation that Adam did not victoriously overcome. He did not recognize the, the schemes or the strategies or the tactics of the enemy, and he fell to them, and therefore, as a result, he rebelled against the authority of God. You know, there is only one God, and we either, we either bow our knee to him and respect him and, and trust him and submit to his authority, or we say that we're our own God, and don't tell me what to do. I'll tell you what to do, and I'll only listen to you as long as you tell me what I want to hear. But the moment you tell me something different, I don't want to hear about it. We need to recognize there's an ultimate authority. In this passage, Luke's help, Luke helps us to understand in five different ways the ultimate authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, in verses 31 and 32, we're told that he came down to Capernaum. We, found, we already saw why that was the case. He was well-received in Capernaum before he went back to Nazareth. When he went back to his hometown, he said that prophets without honor in his hometown among his own people. Uh, he was not re- received very warmly, as was evident by their response, as he exposed their failure to believe in him as the Savior, as Messiah, as the Christ, as God's chosen one. They rejected his authority as he exposed their unbelief. And so they wanted to kill him because of that. 
You know, when we live in a world that's the same today as Jesus Christ exposes to the world the ultimate authority that has been given to him, Jesus, in fact, said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And he tells his people to go into all the world, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching people to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always till the end of the age. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ. All judgment has been given to him by the Father for the sacrifice that he made on the cross. All will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Unfortunately, it will be too late for those who have chosen, not necessarily chosen, but were commanded and forced to do so before they were separated. They'll be separated for all of eternity from the presence of God. You know, you're either going to bow your knee now or you're going to bow your knee then. And if you bow your knee now, you have eternal life. If you bow your knee then, it's the last thing that you'll do before God sends you to hell for all of eternity. See, people don't like to hear that, and they want to kill the message of Jesus today just as much as they wanted to kill the message of Jesus then. They didn't like what he said. They wanted to believe what they wanted to believe. They wanted to believe that all roads led to heaven. They wanted to believe they could live any way that they want, and somehow God will grade on the curve, and as long as they're better than the next guy, then that's going to be okay. They didn't want to hear the exclusive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did not want to hear that God's plan was all mankind must repent of their sin and turn from sin and turn to God and trust in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection, and receive him as Lord and Savior in order to be forgiven by God. They didn't want to hear that. People today don't want to hear that. They want to hear we can live any way that we want to live, and you know what? And somehow God's got to let everybody into heaven, and that is a lie from the pit of hell. It's a strategy or tactic of our enemy to confuse people who are on the road to eternal damnation into believing that they're okay before God. It is not true. And Jesus will reveal his ultimate authority. And as we notice this in verse 32, in verse 31, he says that he went to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. The ultimate the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ was revealed in his preaching as we see in these two verses. You know, Capernaum was a prosperous fishing town in the day of our Lord, and it had, more, it had a more varied population than Nazareth. And so as a result, the synagogue would have been filled that particular day with people who were fishermen, merchants, craftsmen, and laborers and their wives. And if you recall the order of events that take place in a service in the synagogue, uh, the folks would have participated in the Psalms and in the blessings and the prayer and in the reading of the law and the prophets. And they couldn't wait because Jesus had been there before. His reputation preceded him. They could not wait to hear him preach and teach about the word of God. They couldn't wait to hear what he had to say. And that's why in the last time we're together, we notice in Luke chapter 4 that when he read the scroll from Isaiah and handed it back to the attendant, every person in the room's eyes were fixed on him to wait to see what he had to say about the passage that he had just read. They were fixed on him. They were glued on him. They couldn't wait to hear, explain to us what you just read so that we can have understanding. The authority of the Word of God, it reminds me, just as I was thinking about this in this moment, as, as the Ethiopian eunuch was, was traveling through the desert. 
And he was reading the same book of Isaiah, and he didn't understand it. And Philip was sent to him by God, and he said, Do you understand what you're reading? He says, No, I'm not real sure. Is he speaking of himself, or is he speaking of the one who was promised by God? Was Isaiah writing about himself, or was he writing about the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior that would be sent by God? And Philip began to explain from the Word of God exactly what it was that God was saying. I'll never forget, you know, years ago, 25 years now, almost longer than that, the first time I ever went to a church that explained the Word of God, that opened the Bible and began to speak from the Word of God and the authority that came through and the conviction and the clarity as I walked out going, man, you know what, that's the first time I've ever understood in a way that I could comprehend. I'm not saying that I believed it. I'm not saying I received it. I'm not saying that I accepted it. But what I'm saying was I understood it. And see, as Jesus was was preaching, they couldn't wait to hear what he had to say. And you know what? And they weren't disappointed. Never. They were amazed. They were blown away. The word amazement literally means to strike with panic or shock. When they heard Jesus preach, they were, in essence, thunderstruck. His preaching packed the wall up, and the reason for it was because his message had authority. His message had authority. It had the authority of God. This authority is a common theme throughout the Gospels. If you'll turn back with me to the book of Matthew, notice in Matthew chapter 7, the amazement that the crowd had every time Jesus explained the Scriptures. Every time Jesus preached a sermon, every time he taught, they were amazed by what he had to say. In verse 28 and 29 of of chapter 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, this is the conclusion of what he had just taught. And it says, And the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, and now to understand Scripture, you always want to take it in the content, in the context of which we find it. The end result was they were amazed as he had finished their, his preaching and teaching. Because why? What did he just say? He just said, you know what? There are a whole bunch of people who think they're good people. There are a whole bunch of people who think, but Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do all these good works in your name? Didn't we even cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Didn't we do all this stuff in your name? And Jesus said, you know what? I never knew you, and you never knew me. And he went on to explain very simply that, you know what? There's a very narrow gate. There's a very exclusive way that one enters into a right relationship with God. And it's by repenting of our sin, recognizing first that we're guilty as charged by God, repenting, which simply means have a change of mind and a change of heart about who we think we are, turning from sin and turning to God, listening to what he says, okay, God, what is it that I need to do? You need to believe upon my son. You need to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You need to believe that he died on the cross for you. You need to believe that he rose again from the dead. He's alive today and he will judge the living and the dead. And he can offer eternal life to you because he is alive. He is not in a tomb. The tomb is empty. He is alive and over 500 witnesses saw it. It was testified throughout human history. There is no question of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the whole existence of the church today is because people saw Jesus Christ alive and they believed upon him him as their Lord and Savior. And as we look at that and listen to that, what he's saying to them is, unless you do things God's way, you're going to hell. 
Period. Oh, how can such a loving God send anyone to hell? You've got to understand the character of God. God's great love for us that He sent Christ to die for us even when we're in rebellion against God. No one can ever question the love of God. God did not hold back anything for us so that we would be redeemed by God. God sent His only begotten Son into the world to die upon the cross and provide a way for you and I to find redemption and forgiveness with God. No one can ever accuse God of not loving them. They may not accept His love. They may not want to believe in Him. They may want to reject the grace that has been offered to them. But Jesus said, if you do that, let me tell you something. You know what? Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Not a foolish person who built his house upon the sand or built his house upon a faltering foundation that when the winds and rain came, it knocked it down or it began to sink and it began to crumble. And when he finished these words, they were amazed because no one spoke to them with such authority. No one but Jesus himself understood who had come from heaven to earth what it takes to end up in heaven. He came from heaven to earth. So that you and I would believe upon Him, receive Him as Lord and Savior, trust in Him and Him completely for the forgiveness of our sins. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. It's the only way you're going to get there. And He was clear. And He was also convicting. They were thunderstruck. They were in a sense of panic when He would preach the Word of God because He preached as one with authority. And the authority, as we look at this, the authority is, as we find, every time that Jesus spoke, it was radically different from others in his day. The Pharisees and the scribes, um, what they like to do is they like to quote other teachers. They were in bondage to quotation marks. They were in bondage to the writings of other rabbis. They were in bondage uh, to those others who were out there, and they were preaching and teaching, and, and they would just quote what had already been quoted. There wasn't original thought among any of them. They were like many preachers today who quote other preachers rather than teach the Word of God. There's nothing worse than hearing a person just quote a whole bunch of other preachers, man. If they're going to quote a whole bunch of other preachers, you might as well go listen to them. But that's not God's plan for His church. God raises up in the local church those who are gifted to serve the local church. Otherwise, you might as well just have big video screens and we'll just all listen to one guy who's going to preach the Word. The whole purpose of the local body, the local church that's found throughout the New Testament is so more of God's people can get involved in serving God and going out and making a difference for the kingdom of God. You know, God's church is not built on a man. God's church, the foundation is Jesus Christ, Him crucified and Him resurrected. That's why, regardless of what God ever chooses to do with my life, it's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. I've got a great peace about knowing this. I will never live a day longer than God has ordained, and I will never die a day sooner, and I am at peace with that. And so when you say, well, what what is this? The church moves on. Because Jesus Christ has chosen the church to be light and darkness and salt that draws people to the gospel. So we move forward. You know, they quoted, they would just quote, they would quote one another. And you know what? And, and, and the teaching of Jesus' day was secondhand theology. It was petty. It was legalistic. It was lifeless. It was boring. Oh, shoot me and kill me. Is this over yet? We've all been there. You know what? And I'll tell you what. That's the thing that kept me from going to church. I, you know, when I was, I'd go and it'd be like, tick, tick, tick. 
You know what it reminded me of? I'm going to share a little bit more about this, but going to church back in the day reminded me of being in an MRI machine. (laughs) Thought about that this past week. It was like, when is this going to be over? This is torture. Man. But when Jesus spoke, man, they were on the edge of their seat. They were actually standing up. And they couldn't wait to hear the next thing that he had to say. Why? Because when Jesus spoke, he said, hey, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Think about that. You've heard it say, but I say to you. In Matthew 5, they're all like, he doesn't preach like the rest of those preachers. He doesn't teach like the rest of those teachers. He's not quoting this guy, that guy, and the other guy. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Authoritative. Why? Because he taught the word of God. And every word that came out of his mouth was the word of God. How great is that? In contrast, I want you to consider the God talk of a contemporary theologian whose name I've withheld because it's not so important who he is, but listen to what he said. Insofar as an eschatological epiphany of Christ can occur only in conjunction with a realization and total experience of the kinetic process of self-negation. We should expect that epiphany to occur in the heart of darkness, for only the universal triumph of the Antichrist can provide an arena for the total manifestation of Christ. And we all said, Amen. Yeah, the one, the one guy over there pretending like he knew what this guy just said. And we'll be praying for truthfulness to come out of your heart, my brother. I, I, know, I read stuff like that. I go, what? Duh. You know, preaching the word of God should always be as clear as possible for the listener, never to confuse or show how intelligent a preacher may think he is. It is not a platform for self-display of intelligence. It is a platform to lift up the Word of God and to teach it in clarity. Once Harry Ironside was greeted by a visitor who said after the service that he enjoyed the service, although he did not think much of Ironside as a preacher. He said, you know, I've heard that you're a great preacher, but I just don't see what people thought. And Ironside replied and said, well, I know that I'm not a great preacher, but what was it about my preaching that brought you to that conclusion? And the man answered and said, because I understood everything you said. (laughs) You know, and and what a great and unwitting confession of one of the reasons for Ironside's greatness. Because as you think about it, Jesus too, when he preached the word of God, was clear and painfully direct in his application. And as we see again and again throughout the Gospels, that he preached as one, untaught as one with authority. If we had been there, and as we read his words, we are also in amazement and thunderstruck at the clarity of the word of God. You know, my personal prayer is that each time I preach or teach, wherever that may be, wherever the setting is, is that the audience that God brings to that particular event will always understand clearly the message of God. They may not always like it. They may not always agree with it. uh, But at the very least, my prayer is they walk away and understand clearly what it is that was said. And that's all that any teacher or preacher of the word of God can ever ask. 
I praise God for men like Billy Graham, who over 50 years preached the clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hear over and over again how people say, but it's so simple. You know, he's preaching the prodigal son for the 7,000 millionth time. And you know what? Because every generation, there's a prodigal son. And the word of God is timeless. The word of God is eternal. The word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I hope the only thing I ever repeat to you are maybe personal stories or jokes. But the rest will be fresh and new and exciting, and you'll be amazed at the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of God's word. You know, Jesus' authority was revealed in his preaching. What he said was clear. And notice it was also convicting, as I mentioned back to Luke chapter 4. The word amazement means to be convicted uh, or thunderstruck or in awe of what was just heard. As the word of God is taught, as the word of God is proclaimed, there should never be a person that doesn't walk away that knows the Lord, number one. And those who, are, who don't know the Lord should be convicted of sin and their need for forgiveness. Those of us who do know the Lord should be convicted of action that we should take. Everyone who acts upon the words is a wise man. Not every person who hears the word is a wise man. For years, I've given counsel to people who have come to me with a variety of problems, and we've given them counsel from the Word of God. This is what God's Word says you should do, and they hear the truth, and yet they refuse to apply it. The words are the words of wisdom. How one acts upon them or not acts upon them will decide whether you are a wise or foolish person in the sight of God. So as we look at this, he preached with conviction because, as we already know, the Holy Spirit descended upon him at his baptism. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from the Jordan filled with the Holy Spirit. He preached and proclaimed, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And we know from John 16 that Jesus said that I go away, and it's good that I go away because when I go away, the Spirit of God will come. He will reside in the hearts of those who trust in Christ. The Spirit of God will convict us of truth and righteousness and sin and judgment and God's spirit living within us is the constant battle that you and I have when we're trying to do that which is wrong before God and yet we struggle with why do I do the things that are wrong it's not the things that I wanted that I should do or shouldn't do what am I struggling with all this because you've come to faith in Christ the spirit of God lives within you and you are being convicted of your thoughts you're being convicted of your actions if they are not in, in a manner that's worthy of your calling and I praise God for the Spirit's presence in my life because without it, I wouldn't know the difference between right or wrong. But I do because he lives within me. It's awesome. So he preached with conviction and he preached with clarity. From an application standpoint, let me just throw out a couple of thoughts. As Jesus went forth to war against the forces of evil, he staked everything on the written word of God the ultimate authority. He defeated Satan and his temptations in the desert by quoting God's word. And in his ministry at large, it became his ministry and his mainstay, preaching the word of God. His first sermon was, hand me the scroll. He read Isaiah 61 and he explained the meaning of what was taking place. After his resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, as he was walking and the disciples were walking along talking about the events of the day, he began to explain to them from Moses and the law and the prophets 
Everything God said must take place that would happen when God sent his Savior into the world. And he explained to them from the scriptures why everything happened exactly as it did. Jesus Christ upheld the word of God. And so must we. If the church is to have any authority today and make a difference for God's kingdom, it must teach the authority of God's holy word. Think about Paul's charge to Timothy comes to us all when he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Every believer should have a burden to study the word of God so that when you are asked a question by anyone in your area of life, that you can give them with authority an answer or message straight from the throne room of God. Preach the word in season and out of season. In our day when postmodern culture is not interested in reason, doctrine, but only on feelings, the church must stand on God's word, otherwise it has no authority at all. At this point, when the word of God is thrown out, every person believes that their opinion is equally as valid as the next. And we see denominations continually struggling with whether the word of God is the ultimate authority or not. And when the word of God is thrown aside, then everybody's opinion becomes equally valid. And then our theology is based on feelings and based on what they think is love, what was really sin. And we see it on a regular basis all around us. And we need to recognize and understand that we are here to stand upon the word of God because it is the ultimate authority of God. And outside of God's word, all of our opinions and all of our feelings are deceptive. The heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. But who can understand it but God? And we've got to go to the ultimate tiebreaker on every issue, which is God's word. What does God have to say? What does his word have to say? God said it, I believe it, end of story. Think about the greatest faith in all of Israel was a centurion soldier who came to him and implored upon Jesus to come to my home for, for, for my servant is ill. He said, but you don't even have to come. All you need to do is speak the word and he will be healed. She will be healed. They will be healed. Speak the word. And he walked away believing that all it took was the word of God to heal one. His faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's only God's word that can heal us of our sin. So as we look at this, our opinions and our feelings are worthless. The ultimate authority, as I've mentioned, is the word of God. We need to hear it. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to memorize it. We need to meditate on it and do so day and night so that we may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have much success. A second truth which emerged from this passage regarding the ultimate authority of Jesus is that it is recognized, his authority is recognized by the devil and his demons. And what a wonderful thing that is to know. Notice this, it's recognized by the devil and his demons. And there was a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. If you remember from the temptation in the wilderness, if you turn back in chapter 4 earlier, we see the same thing in verse 3. The devil said to Jesus, 
if, and he wasn't saying if it's true, maybe it's not, if the word in the Greek means simply this, since you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Since you are God, you can do anything. He recognized who he was. He recognized him as the Son of God. He recognized his authority. He recognized who he was. He went on later and said the same thing in verse 9. He says, since you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And God will send his angels to protect you. The devil knows who Jesus is. Demons know who Jesus is. They know he's the Son of God. They know he's the Savior of the world. They know that all authority has been given to him, and one day he will condemn them for all of eternity. And, and, And you know what? But people don't recognize the authority of Jesus. The devil and his demons know, but I know a whole bunch of people who think he's a good guy, great guy, nice guy, good teacher, you know, good moral example. He was an angel. He was a God, one of many gods. They think that he's everything other than what the Bible claims that he is and who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God who was sent here to die for our sins and he rose again from the dead so that he is alive today. And redemption is available to all who come to him. The devil knows who he is. The demons know. And in fact, that word ha, it doesn't mean ha ha. It doesn't mean ha. What it means is, have you, ever, have you ever gone into a room with somebody in the room and they don't hear you coming? This happens on a pretty regular basis while my wife's drying her hair and the hair dryer's going. And I kind of just walk in. And, you know, and then she'll either catch a glimpse from the mirror or whatever, and then it'll be like, ah! You know? And, 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 and so it's kind of like that kind of thing, where, you know, you walk, and, and it's like, ah! Well, here's this demon in the synagogue, and Jesus shows up, and he goes, ah! You know, and, and, and even a more, maybe a more practical illustration to really help you gain the flavor of this, the word picture that's here. Several years ago, when I was a young man, there was a guy in my life who did something that I believed at the time warranted a good, just a good old whooping. And so, as I was putting the lumber to him, as they used to say back in the day, and just kind of hammering him, I saw this look on his face as he was looking, and, and, and there was a look of pain and anguish and, and, and suffering, and, and it was sweet at the time, and I, you know... I, you know, I'm not, I'm not encouraging anybody nor recommending this. It just shows you the carnality of the human spirit. But, make a long story short, all of a sudden he started smiling. And no one getting whooped on smiles unless there's good reason to smile. And then I kind of saw the shadow and I looked behind me and his big brother was coming. And his big brother was a big brother, man. He was big. He was huge. He was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. But I praise God to this day, he wasn't as fast as me. (laughs) But I was reminded of that in this passage. Because it was kind of like, ha, ha, oh, oh, hey, hey, oh, what's going on here? Well, that's what was going on here. So this word picture is that this demon goes, ah, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? They know. The devil knows. His demons know. 1 John 3 eight clearly tells us that Jesus Christ came to destroy the devil and the works of the devil. That he came to destroy him. Even the, one of the earliest prophecies about the, 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 uh, the uh, crucifixion of Jesus was that Satan would bruise his heel, but Jesus would crush his head. 
And there's a final blow that took place. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, Satan. Satan holds the world in bondage by death and a fear of seeking God and truth because as he, if he can continue to have people who are fearful of death and fearful of what the, is to come but still think they're okay in the process, then he's got them for all of eternity. And as we look at this, he said, whoa, whoa, hey, is this it? Is this it? Is the, is the, is the, the, the gig up, man? Is the jig up? Is this time? Are we out of here? And he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And the reason he wasn't trying to kiss up to Jesus, but he was trying to in that particular day, they believed, it was widely believed, that the exact knowledge of another person's name brought mastery or control over him. It was a desperate, ill-informed attempt to somehow subdue the authority of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice that, and he rebuked him. Be quiet and come out. And before we look at that, the application for me is simply this, and maybe for you, is that we need to recognize the encounter that took place here. That without doubt, that whenever the authority of Christ, the Son of God, is invoked in preaching or teaching, there will be a violent confrontation with the evil spirits who possess men's souls and rule and ruin their lives. There will always be a tremendous collision. But you know what? Without impact, we can't make a difference. Without impact, we cannot make a difference. And when truth is proclaimed and the word of God is taught with ultimate authority, there will be a collision of violent force. That is why the world hates the word of God. Because God's world, word convicts of sin. God's word tells every person, none of us are righteous, no, not one. God's word tells everyone that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's word, word tells every person that you must repent and you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. God's word is very clear and very convicting. In a world that hates God, hates his truth. Jesus came as light and darkness and the world, world hated him because the light exposed their deeds. For those who live in sin love darkness. There will be a collision Every time from the, word, from the pulpit of any ministry when the word of God is taught and sexual immorality is called out for what it is, sexual immorality and a sin before God, there will be a violent collision. And I don't care if it's heterosexual sin. I don't care if it's adultery. I don't care if it's fornication. I don't care if it's homosexuality. Whatever the sin is and called sin as God calls it sin, there will be a recoiling effect and there will be a hatred for God's truth. Whenever the word of God stands up to protect the rights of the unborn. Because we know even before we were conceived in our mother's womb. That God ordained each day for us. So that we know that conception. Even before conception the Bible tells us that we are people known to God. We know that from even what we've learned of John the Baptist. Before he was even conceived. Before he was in his mother's womb. God had a ministry for him. That he would be the one who would, who would make straight the paths of the Lord. It was a tremendous example through Scripture. In every pulpit that preaches against abortion, there will be a violent collision because the world wants to hear they can do whatever they want to do with immunity and impunity from the consequences of God. Anytime sin is called sin, there will be a violent collision. 
And we see it in the synagogue as Jesus Christ preached and taught with authority the word of God. And the demons of hell went, oh! We must continue to uphold the word of God. A third truth emerged as to the ultimate authority of Jesus, as I've just mentioned, in that he rebuked demons and even disease. Notice this, Jesus in verse 35, he rebuked them saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And it's important to recognize and notice, he didn't say, oh yeah, make me. Try to get me out of him. He demonstrated ultimate authority. He said, in essence, shut up. And I know people today will say, oh, don't tell anyone to shut up. You know what? There's time you need to just tell people, shut up. I mean, I, you know, you can say it in a politer way. Oh, be, you know, some translate, be muzzled. That's some, be muzzled. Be quiet. Shut up. He said, you know, just shut up and come out of him. And he, rebu- he rebuked the demons. And they submitted to his authority. And I praise God for that. You know why? Because there is nothing that the devil and his demons can do to any one of God's children without God allowing it for his purposes and for his glory. Isn't that awesome? I mean, they think, you know, the devil thinks, the demons think, hey, we're going to stop God's plan. Watch this. We're going to do this. And God allows it. And you know why? Because he overcomes evil with good. Through the evil intentions of Joseph's brothers, they were sold into slavery. And what they meant for evil, God said, what you meant for evil, I intended for good. And he's now in second command of all of Egypt. And because he's there, he preserved the nation of Israel. Now, I'm sure along the way, he was going like I'm going sometimes. Now, God, isn't there another way? But I'm thinking, you know what? If there's another way to get Joseph where God wanted him to be and the humility that he ended up having when he got there, then God would have done whatever. But he chose to do it that way because he knew what Joseph needed. He knew what Paul needed. He knows what I need. He knows what you need to be put in a position where, you know what? We will be humble servants of him and he gets all the glory and praise. It's awesome. It's awesome. But he rebuked the demons. They listened. Now we jump down to verse 38. Notice he arose, left the synagogue, and entered. You know, this is all one day. You talk about having a busy day. This is one good day we're having right here. And he rose and he left the synagogue. He entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law says was suffering from a high fever. And I, and I love this. And they made request of him on her behalf. God answers prayer. You know what? God's, and you know what's so wonderful about it? And I praise God for people who are praying for me because I know that God is answering your prayer because, you know what, because you're a humble servant of God and because God knows your heart and God has listened to you when maybe, you know what, if it was just about me, that wouldn't happen. But I praise God. And we need to be praying for one another because we'll notice that God responds to the requests of his people. And you know what's so wonderful is? When Solomon was asked at a time in his life, what is it that you want? He said, I want, a, I want a discerning heart. And you know what God said? Because you didn't ask for riches and wealth and fame for yourself, I will not only give you a discerning heart, but I will give you everything else as well. How awesome is that? God, this isn't about me, but I want to bring this request to you about my brother or my sister, whom I love and you love, and we want to lift them up to you. And I want you to notice something. 
Jesus responded to their request. And the same word is used here. He, he rebuked the fever. Now, Dr. Luke knew what a fever was. He calls it a high fever, meaning that she was suffering or in the grip of. And the medical term that was used by Luke will help us to understand the life-threatening nature of her illness. This was a very serious illness that she had. It was an illness, excuse me, an illness that was unto death. He used that term as a doctor and he recognized exactly the condition that she was in. And as you look at that, he said that she was suffering from a high fever. She was at the point of death. And God's people made requests of him on her behalf. You know, I'm learning a lot through this process. I'm learning to look in a doctor's eye and can read whether or not he really wants to be talking to you right then or not. You know, whether they're in a big hurry to call you back or not. Because they don't know that when you have the peace of God and you understand he's in control of all things, they they don't know how to respond to that because that's not the world they live in. I'm learning a lot about medical terms. For example, sarcoma comes from the Greek word meaning fleshy tissue. I learned that. (laughs) I'm learning that whoever invented the MRI machine was just one sick guy. (laughs) I'm telling you right now. Someone said, sing Jesus loves me. I sang Jesus loved me in every language I could think of. I sang every song I knew. I, I, I prayed for every person I ever met. I, 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 I recited every passage I memorized. And if it wasn't for the fact of a little bit of contortionism in my head where I could go like this and stick my head out and see a little T-bar ceiling and some light, I don't know if I would have been able to handle it. But I praise God for that. X-rays and... CAT scans and feeling dye run all through your body. That's an interesting experience. Concurrence of opinions. Dr. Luke points out this woman was gravely ill and Jesus rebuked the fever and it left her. Isn't that great? Total control. When Jesus was out in the boat, if you remember when there was a storm, he rebuked the winds and the rain. The word rebuke is a beautiful word because the word of God, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for for teaching and rebuke. You know what rebuke basically does? It just shuts people up. It's saying you think you're innocent, but here's what God has to say about your behavior and what the word of God should do for those who are wise is shut us up and, and make us realize, I'm not saying another word because you're right, I'm wrong, you're God, I'm not. The word rebuke is shut up. Be still and submit to my authority. The winds did it. The rains did it. The demons did it. The fever did it. Everything in the universe is under the control and the ultimate authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to not miss this. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever and it left her. Notice. And she immediately arose and waited on them. Here's our application. Here's my application. This woman understood what many of us unfortunately have yet to learn. And that is that her health and her strength were to be used to serve the Lord and others. I realize that aging and health issues can become real obstacles. They may slow us down. 
But don't ever let it, whatever it is in your life, stop you. We are all just passing through. Our citizenship for those who have trusted in Christ is in heaven. Let us depart this life into the next, having spent every last ounce of energy serving our Savior and those he wants us to reach with the gospel. Can I challenge you to do that? Some of us are just guilty of the sin of laziness. Guilty of the sin of making excuses. Man, I heard a guy once say, and I, Dave Dravecki, he lost his arm and his shoulder to surgery, and he praised God that he still had two other legs and he still had another arm. Still praised God he could think, that he could speak, that he could share the goodness and the mercy and the graciousness of God. And all I know is this, is that I have learned from this just a little bit that, you know what, I praise God that it's here and not somewhere else. And if it was somewhere else, I'd praise God it was there and not somewhere else. And you can't lose if you live to praise God. So stop feeling sorry for yourselves and start to use the strength and the energy that God has given you to serve God and his people. This woman was healed instantly. See, God, God's healing is not hocus-pocus. It's not smoke and mirrors. It's not, you know, help them off the stage. Oh, you're healed. Oh, yeah, right. And they fall off the stage, you know. And it's like, and God doesn't do that. When he heals, he heals completely and totally. It didn't take time to recover. She didn't have to get her strength back up again. She didn't have to go through rehab. She, didn't have to, she got up immediately and said, what can I get you, Lord? What can I get for you people? I'm here. Hey, I can't wait. And maybe what God has to do sometimes is take our strength and our energy away so that we get our priorities straight so that when he gives them back to us, we're now using them for his purpose and for his glory. Let's get busy serving Jesus because he's given us everything we need to have fellowship with God. Number four, the results of the ultimate authority of Jesus were amazement. And we've already talked about that. They were amazed. They were blown away. Amazement came upon all of them. The demon was rebuked. The, you know, the, the fever was rebuked. They were amazed at everything. As I mentioned, the words and the actions should always cause us to be thunderstruck. Everything that Jesus does, we should be going, what do you, Lord, want to teach me through this? How must I apply this truth? Do I need to confess and agree with you there's sin in my life? Do I need to repent of that sin? Do I need to take action in an area that I'm being convicted, that I need to be a part of? Should I be involved? in this ministry or that ministry? What gift has you give, have you given me? What gifts have you given me? How should I be serving you and your people to build up your church so that we can make a difference in our community for the kingdom of God? What is it that's going on? They were amazed. They were in awe. They were thunderstruck. They walked out of there going, you know what? I need to get busy doing what God's calling me to do. And they acted on his words. They just didn't hear them only. All authority has been given to him on heaven and earth, as I've mentioned. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. I ask you the question today, have you bowed your knee today to him? Have you trusted in Him as Savior? Has He repented of your sins? Do you recognize you're a sinner that's going to hell unless you turn from sin and turn to God and believe what God says? Believe upon Him, Jesus, whom God has sent. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe upon Him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
Have you turned from sin, turned to God, gone to the cross, trusted in Christ, believed in His death on the cross for you and the power of His resurrection for you and received Him as your Savior? There is no other way to get to heaven. There is no other way to have a relationship with God. There is no other way to be bought back from the bondage of the devil and sin and darkness and all that confines us. There is no other way. And there is no other name given under heaven to men by which men can be saved. The ultimate authority is Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in him? And lastly, the ultimate authority of Jesus relieves the suffering of many. Notice this. And while the sun was setting, all who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him, laying hands on every one of them. He was healing them. And even the demons recognized him. And the point was this. You know, talk about God's love. Jesus made no demands of these people. He didn't say, you've got to trust in me. He didn't say you have to repent and turn from sin at this point. Why? Because the book of Isaiah in chapter 53 and verse 4, 3 tells us that it was for our griefs he came to bear our sorrows. The calling card of Jesus was that he would heal those who were sick. Anyone who came to him, he healed them. Listen closely. He healed them of their physical ailments, but not of their spiritual death. He healed them physically because the book of Isaiah in 53, chapter 53, verse 3 tells us that he came to bear our sorrows. He came, it was the favorable day of the Lord, and he healed those who came to him who had physical ailments. And it was those healings that was his calling card, that he was who he claimed to be, the Savior of the world sent by God. They were signs to point people to believe and trust in him. That's why he did it. To be compassionate, to fulfill scripture, to heal those who were ailing. But in chapter 4, uh, verse 4 of Isaiah 53, it goes on to say this. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And it was by his scourgings that we are healed. There is a contrast. He healed them physically, but it was dying upon the cross. That he was crushed for our iniquities. It was by his scourging that we, was, that we were healed for those who trust in him. There's two aspects that you're dealing with here. One is we live in a world that deals with the physical. Oh God, heal me of my physical ailment. You know what? You can be healed of every physical ailment that you have, but there's a point in a day for man to die once and then comes judgment. If this ailment doesn't kill you, the next one might. And if not that one, then one after that. But we all, are got, we all got the kiss of death. Why? Because the soul that sins will die. The wages of sin is death. And if that was the end of the story, the Bible, or the, 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 uh, the Roman and Greek philosophers said, then, you know, eat, drink, and then be married, for tomorrow we die. Live like any way that you want. But God has given every man a conscience that knows that there is a God. And the Bible says, don't eat, drink, and be married, for tomorrow we die. The Bible says, bend your knee today to his son, Jesus Christ. For he was crushed for our iniquities. He was hung on the cross because without the the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. He was scourged for our sins that those of us who trust in him will be healed. By his stripes, we are healed. Though our sins are red as scarlet, he will make them white as snow. See, healing physically just led people to understand their need to be healed spiritually. Stop focusing on the temporary and start focusing on the eternal. 
what you might need, what I came to recognize 20 years ago, by the 25 years ago by the grace of God, is that I needed to be healed spiritually because I was dead to God and alive to sin. If you're here today and you're dead to God and alive to sin, your greatest need is to come to the cross, to recognize your sin, to turn and repent of it, to recognize that God loves you and he sent his son to die for you even when you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. To trust in his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection, to receive him today as Lord and Savior. The atonement of Jesus Christ. He came to lift and carry away our sins. The word that's found in 1 John tells us he came and lifted them away and took them away for all of eternity. It's the same word that we find where he says that as far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. Have you trusted in the ultimate authority? The ultimate authority of the word of God that says it's by, you know, the word of God that comes faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. It's by believing upon God's word and believing upon him, Jesus, whom God has sent. The ultimate authority. Because Jesus Christ, because of his death and obedience to God, has been given a name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. Have you trusted in him as your Savior? Do you recognize his ultimate authority in your life and the ultimate authority of the word of God to dictate how you should live? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for the clarity of your word and the convicting power of your spirit. God, I pray for those who are here today that may not know you, They may think they do, but they have no confidence or assurance that there would be clarity today, that they would recognize their need for forgiveness, that they would turn from sin, that they would trust in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection, and receive him here and now as as their Lord and Savior. God, for those of us who have bowed our knee in our hearts and come to you at some point in our past, May we recognize the need to use the strength, the energy, the vigor that you've given us, the gifts that you've entrusted to us to serve you, your people, in a lost and dying world. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the ultimate authority, who one day every person will have to give an account of their life for unbelievers, for rejecting his death and resurrection on their behalf. For believers, we will give an account of how we lived the life in this flesh subsequently, uh, subsequent to coming to know you for the purpose of being rewarded by you. Oh God, my prayer is that every one of your people will hear those wonderful words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen.